Mr. Tony Roberts. What's the best way to describe Tony? He is a innovative surf photographer and filmmaker from Santa Cruz. Best known for his work with Surfing Magazine in the 80s and 90s, where he pioneered photography techniques to document the genesis and quick progression of aerial surfing that was taking place in his hometown. He got his first camera when he was 12 years old, and I actually found an epic image of Tony on the Encyclopedia of Surfing, eos.surf. And uh, Tony's 13, he has a video camera hoisted on his shoulder with a young Tom Curran trying to sneak a peek over his shoulder and into the viewfinder. I've posted that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. By the age of 16, Tony was touring live shows of his surf and skate films to local school auditoriums. He was providing live narration and even DJing the soundtrack live on the spot. So he began working for Surfing Magazine in 1984 under the tutelage of famed photo editor Flame. Much of the world's interest and focus on Santa Cruz and the aerial surfing, which by the way became immeasurably influential in modern surfing, much of the world's interest in those things can be directly attributed to Tony Roberts and him having that platform of Surfing Magazine to showcase really what was uniquely happening amongst his friends. Um, and among them, Ratboy, Flea, Barney, Galley, Richard Schmidt. Tony logged multiple cover shots during that time, probably a dozen, and then 20 feature length surf and skate films. In 1996, he relocated to Costa Rica and became a key asset and liaison for nearly any pro surfer or surf brand who wanted to ensure that they would score in Central America. As the industry and surf media has slowly dissolved, Tony has parlayed those skills into a tourist-focused business called Real Surf Trips, and he documents some of the surfing that takes place and a lot of the cultural context through his YouTube series called Real Surf Stories. I've also posted an episode of that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I met Tony in Panama at the end of 2013. Uh, We were on a surf trip together and I documented it as an audio diary and published it as a podcast entitled Anatomy of a Surf Trip. And then I also did another episode that was just a pretty straightforward biographical interview with Tony, kind of explaining his origin story and his various uh, jobs that he had throughout his career. Both of those episodes um, are available in your show notes. It's episodes 25 and 27 of Surf Splendor. Anyway, I have seen Tony at least once a year since then, often in Costa Rica, sometimes in California. And that's where we reconnected a couple of weeks ago. We recorded this chat in a Airbnb on the beach in Costa Rica. You can hear waves in the background. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Tony Roberts. Welcome to the show. <laughs> nice to be back. One of the first guests, season one, virtually. True that. Not that we do seasons, but that was early days. Yeah. Awesome. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, where do we begin, dude? We're sitting here at Playa Negra. People could probably hear the waves in the background. What is Playa Negra to you? 
it's home, really. I mean, it's a base. I'm jumping all around the region for the different swells, the different seasons. I've kind of got my months mapped out now for my favorite places to surf. And Playa Negra is where my daughter's mother's family is. So it's just kind of a launching pad. And the wave itself is just feels like a bone of my body. It's just I know every rock out there and just paddling out into the bowl, it's the best feeling in the world. Um, you got the wave of the day yesterday, no doubt. Wow. Maybe the wave of the week, maybe maybe even more than that. Dude, it it was bombing. There was it was literally one set, no, maybe like a thirty minute run. Cause as soon as you left, none of that happened again. I saw that. It kinda slowed down. Um, Where'd that thing come from? I have no idea. It was a proper, I mean, double overhead, just freight training set. And I was walking down the path, and I could see it from behind. Drop in, disappear, get shacked, come out, big Tom Curran-esque down carve. Um, what board were you riding? 5.3? Yeah, I was riding the 5.3 20s, uh, Doc Lausch. And uh, it felt like a skimboard on that way. It was yeah. just barely hanging in there. No, but you look so calm and comfortable on it, too. You know, I, b- I believe you felt it was like a skimboard, but from looks, I was like, dude, like full confidence, you know? Yeah, a little board, no big wave. It makes you kind of hug it and. Okay. Makes you kind of get your fingernails and your toenails involved and. Yeah. How often does it get like that, that big? Oh, uh, that's pretty average really is it really yeah i mean that's it wasn't even that big of a swell that was a big set for sure um but there wasn't many that was like one of the bigger waves of the swell so far um but that's kind of an average swell that we get you know twice a month and then you get much bigger swells and then there's down days so it's gnarly i mean i don't want to blow up the spot it's kind of already blown but i've always thought that it was always crowded but any given day there's windows of the day where it's not crowded at all like sitting in this house watching it throughout the day it gets crowded once a day for sure and then it's uncrowded at some point in the day for two hours yeah i surf it to my head all the time i really do it's crazy it's because most of the people who surf playa negra are staying in tamarindo and they come here to surf and party so they'll come down for the morning session and then they leave and it's kind of funny because I don't even think the partying is any good in Tamarindo and the surfing definitely isn't any good. <laughs> so why are they even there in the first place? It's because they want, it's a noble effort to want both of those things on your vacation. But if you come to Costa Rica and you really want those two things, how you do it is you go to San Jose to the capital city, mm. A plus partying on any level, and then go out to the boondocks and A plus surfing. Yeah. But to mix them both in the same day, you're just going to get half-ass of both. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the first times, I mean, arguably the first time I saw Playa Negra in video was the film Jacked that you made that we've talked about on air before. It was, you brought Chris Ward down here? Yeah, Chris Ward at 15 years of age. How not, tell me about that story. How old were you? How did you even know about this place? Had you been before? Give me the full wrap. Yeah, I was already spending part of the year down here camping on the beach. There was still very little access out here, so it was nobody around, real country style. And I met all the local villagers and whatnot. And that was a surfing magazine shoot. Or no, no, Chris Ward, okay. 
jacked video okay yeah. this was a few years on actually um that was late 90s had to be mid if he was 15 yeah gotta be 95 i'm or sorry something. my timeline's all screwy but he was on o'neill at the time right we were doing o'neill video shoot and we were with eric toda skin dog um josh molkoy was with us and uh chris ward showed up with this little 5-4 stubby mayhem and i'd never heard of the kid before and uh immediately the first time he stood up on a wave i knew i was witnessing something special the guy he's got like a an extra sense with the ocean just and i recognized it early on i mean that was an amazing segment he kind of rewrote the book on how to surf this wave and i instantly started writing a smaller board and um we actually on that video traveled all over the world together we went to africa and indonesia todd chesser was with us most of the trip and i remember that j bay footage yeah and so chris is definitely goes to the beat of a different drummer that's been well documented you know yeah. but what um his freakish um ability with the ocean is next level yeah that's amazing um why were you coming down to santa cruz or coming down to uh, costa rica so much at that time and i had a big indonesia chapter in my life where that i was there part of the year and really found myself my true nature and years later it started getting really crowded in indonesia i got more ambitious in my career so i was focusing more on my video editing career and and photo career in california and i started coming down here just to surf and kind of find those little moments of myself again and started discovering all these spots on this coast and figuring out the conditions that made them work back then we had the 976 surf facts sean collins surf facts my friend forrest had a satellite um, telephone hooked up to a fax machine hooked up to a generator because there was no electricity here back then amazing and so we kind of figured out the angles and the intervals for all the spots and had it to ourselves so it's kind of like we had our own little indonesia and and uh so that was just as a surfer that's kind of a game changer that, that's what we all dream of and then as a result i ended up just changing my life and moving down here forever yeah um did you know it was going to be forever at the time or did like one month turn into five no i kind of had that normal american brainwashing of okay i want to move to the tropics and live in the tropics but first i'm going to need all this financial security which i tried to year after year in the states attain but just never could like most people the price of of living is so high and and there's so many rad things to buy and the more money you have the more you need and so i could never really get ahead and and really like make that move so i wanted to do it for years but i just didn't think i could there was like a mental block which is odd because i was already like spending part of the year down here and i'd already lived in indo and i already had kind of found what I liked, but I still had that umbilical cord, like kind of almost capitalistic fear 
of not being able to do it. I thought I needed to suffer for eight, nine months of the year to live the way I wanted to for two or three. So I think I got to a certain point. Actually, I remember the flash moment where I was just here, just up the road here, and I was looking into this countryside, into this nothingness, and it, it just hit me like a bell. I was like, whoa, this is it. I could move here and live here and just live, live here forever and just surf every day, and that would be my life, not my vacation. And when that reality hit me, it was, it was kind of a shock because it was a rude awakening because I never even realized, and I was surprised. I was like, whoa, how could I never have realized this before? And so that was the flash point, and I went back to the States, and it wasn't till another year and a half that I actually did make the move. Okay. Drove down here with all my belongings in the back of my pickup truck solo, and uh, Santa Cruz to Santa Cruz Express. Santa Cruz, California to Santa Cruz, Guanacaste. Um, did you actually, in hindsight, did you miss any of the stuff that you were worried about giving up? Absolutely. Um, family. Um, food. You know, kind of modern conveniences. And a real major one was... I had all my Santa Cruz friends that we were making videos together and doing photos together and we were always kind of limited by all kind of working for wetsuit companies so I had this vision that this is going to be next level for all of us we'll be able to start doing stuff for the clothing companies you know this amazing warm water location we'll be shooting trunks not wetsuits and everybody I'd already helped everybody with their contracts get these fat contracts because it was prime time for us at that point in the surf industry and so I was hoping everybody would come down here and shoot with me. Uh-uh. <laughs> Over it. Too cool. Really? Yeah. And so that was, that I missed being able to shoot with my friends. But I got a Transworld surf contract. And they were sending down surfers two groups a month for a year that were mostly East Coast and San Diego guys and Orange County guys. And so I shot with hundreds of surfers when I first moved here for the first um, editions of Transworld Surf, the first year of Transworld Surf. Yeah. And so that was amazing, shooting with all those new guys. But I really missed shooting with my friends. Two groups a month for yeah. a year. Ten days each. Can you imagine that now? 20 days a month. Of just paid guaranteed income. Yeah, guaranteed income. Um, were they paying you fair wages, like by California standards, or were they? Well, by surf photographer standards. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, good. Um, yeah, Zeldo just started the magazine, um, hit me up. He's like, hey, I'm starting Transworld Surf. You know, you used to work for Transworld Skateboarding. You're the surf skate liaison. This is a perfect fit. How can we get you involved in this? And I said, I'm moving to Costa Rica. You know, um, let's do it. Yeah. You send down the, the groups. I'll pick them up at the airport. I got killer places for them to stay, chefs, the whole deal. So that was kind of really the start of real surf trips a long time ago. So how long did that last? I had the contract with Transworld Surf for one year. And it was too much work. Really? And that was, I was really getting into my surfing for the first time since I was a kid. And I saw how cheap I could live on per month down here because there's really not much to spend money on when you've got your cement ramp is built, you've got your, your house is built, the hammocks are hanging, the waves out front. It's kind of, you know, don't really need that much money to live on. And right. so I had kind of the dream life going, but was working too much. So I decided not to renew my contract. So it was just a one-year deal. 
and then I just really focused on surfing for like the next 10 years. So what was the plan in terms of earning income at that time? I just figured that I would shoot whatever came my way, which would be like a sunglass ad here or a, a, you know, a editorial piece there. And, and I really was just tried to forget about working and concentrate 100% on surfing and skateboarding. And the work would come my way. Not much. Yeah. But, you know, I'd get a, I had a, a cuenta, you know, an open tab at the local bar, at the local supermarket, at the restaurant on the beach. So I could have absolutely no money to my name, go invite a round of beers for the boys wherever I want, put it on my tab, you know, then get a check from Arnett for 300 bucks or something, go pay everybody off, great client, and started completely living the dream and opening my mind away from that kind of capitalistic brainwashing that I was raised with. We don't need all that to be happy. Yeah. Um, just as a side note, with bars in Costa Rica maintaining a tab, is it accurate? When you go back to pay them with the check, are they giving you the fair price? or No. Never, right? I mean, <laughs> is it always in their favor? Or is it often, or is it just nonsense? It's never in your favor. Okay, gotcha. So in this paying... country, if you want to change dollars, if you want, and it's a one-way street. Gotcha. There's a lot of wonderful things about Costa Rica. Uh, one of the things that isn't so wonderful um, is you'll run into a lack of integrity in, in certain regards really? in day-to-day -day life. Okay. Because I like the lackadaisicalness of it. It seems very casual. Um, and I just thought, honestly, they probably lose money half the time, but they, it just, who cares, you know? But no, they're paying attention. Absolutely. You nailed it. Um, that's just the way it is here. Gotcha. You know, like you could... Somebody could mess up your meal and you could say, hey, I didn't order this or I ordered that or something. And they'll just be like, too bad. Yeah. You know, gotcha. other places will be, oh, I'm sorry. Here, we'll cook it again for you. But um, it's definitely not the United States. You know, it's yes. a third world country and and they're just cruising and they think that we're impatient. And uh, so you just have to do the overall math on, on what's important to you. For me, this place wins on the overall scale yeah. by a mile. Yeah, sure. I mean, look at that. Oh, We're yeah. looking out at blue ocean, perfect surf, palm trees swaying in the breeze. I mean, yeah. this lifestyle, I'll put up with a lot. Well, when you're, when you're running a tab, you just basically, whatever you pay extra is just the little tax for them holding the credit for you exactly yeah. so worth it yeah yeah yeah. and that was back in the day i don't know if you could pull that off these days right um so like you're i love the idea of abandoning that capitalistic american umbilical cord i think about it all the time because i do feel the umbilical cord cord for sure because family's local for me in southern california and it's just so comfortable it's always been so comfortable it'd be hard to leave unless there was an inciting incident um do you ever think would could you ever go back at this point now that you've been down here for 30 years of course i could if you could yeah if there was a like for my daughter you know some reason you know some opportunity or you know but for myself no yeah. you know but i could and i'd be happy of course you know i i love skateboarding there's all these new parks everywhere and yeah. um you know there's a lot of artistic endeavors you know and musical you know things that i would really get into up there um but surfing is still so important to me 
and it's integral with the diet the yoga it's like the whole package deal being in the tropics and it's it's it would be really uncomfortable for me to to not live like this i mean you say you could do it i wonder if after a year or two you'd be sick you know i might be but i was listening to you and bassy talk about this topic and oh well why could why could you or couldn't you move to the, to the tropics and i was actually like cooking dinner listening to the podcast and i was just laughing my ass off at you guys like you're going dude i couldn't do without my thai food and and like you were just going down the line of all this thing which is super classic because it's my exact yeah. things that i didn't think that i would be able to do without bro you learn to cook thai food yeah yeah you know i'm making my own chocolate now yeah, you yeah. know it's like things that you would never occur to you you know like one day i would I hadn't had a falafel in years. I'm like, I want a falafel. Oh man, no one sells falafels here. And I was just like heartbroken. And, and I, then I was like, well, wait a second. I guess I could, I could make, what is a falafel? So I Google it. It's smashed up garbanzo beans yep. with some cumin and some garlic and onion, some, some cilantro, smash it up, roll it in a ball, fry right. it up. You got falafels. Yep. And so your life takes on a whole different dynamic when you have to, build a trailer for your bicycle instead of buy one when you have to fix your motorcycle because there's no mechanic and so it's it really broadens your spectrums on a lot of levels and it goes you go out of your confidence your, your convenience realm and but that opens up whole new realms yeah and the reason why that makes a lot of more sense to me now is I think, oh, that all takes a lot of time. It's not convenient. It takes a lot of time. I don't know if I have that much time, but I realize now the things that I'm spending my time on are frivolous anyways. You know, it's so, I'm scrolling social media. I'm just watching television or just mundane, completely useless time. Yeah. So you'd rather learn a new trade or learn how to use your hands or whatever and that would enrich your life and empower you to do more things it really so, does yeah you know build your own stuff to yeah. skate you know like like you, you your house needs something you know it's your house dude yeah go to the lumberyard go to the hardware store make it happen um so back to the timeline though you mentioned your daughter that you would move to the u.s for your daughter you had a daughter with a local girl i did do you do so tell me about that um how did you guys meet was that part of the plan as well are you guys still together what's it like dating a local girl in a small town i mean that the small town thing's almost more of an interesting topic than just being international kind of interracial oh you're it's so true there's a saying they say down here pueblo pequeño infierno grande a small town big hell and it's because of the fact that people here they don't have much to do but boy they sure know how to date and do all that other stuff <laughs> so they're so the really one. into it and it, and it's it's so much more of a of an event and a and a spectacle and a talking point and everything's out on the table in, in terms of, of who's dating who yeah i mean people here they're so nosy and everybody knows everything about everyone you know there's no privacy it's just real different because they didn't have electricity not long ago you know so 
everybody was kind of together all the time under candlelight and you know there was no internet there was none of that stuff and these people are not far removed from that so when I moved here I was really intrigued with dating the local women because they're so simple and I come from such a complicated place and striving to be a more simple person that the people here they're like gurus in a way because they're so simple it takes so little for them to be happy that you just want to learn from that so that's really attractive and obviously like these dark-skinned I mean the Costa Rican women are beautiful and so in California growing up it wasn't by no means easy the dating situation but coming down here as a American who speaks perfect Spanish and is quite different you know a lot more availability and so it was really intriguing so unfortunately I had to learn the hard way of what ends most cross-cultural relationships here which it just seems like people they have to learn on their own because you try to tell people give them advice but you see the same pattern over and over and it's it's this simple Dave once you go out of the realm of what they would do or what people they know would do and you're doing something different they're not going to be able to identify with that and that's going to come up on just the most basic day-to-day -day things um, what ended a lot of relationships of all my friends and my marriage which was not my baby's mama uh, is as Americans we think we can just go back to the States work leave our wife behind here she'll be fine and then come back and and she'll just wait for you but in this culture men don't really do that and so the women are kind of more like expected to stay in the house and in this culture like if you give them freedom it's almost like you don't care for them and love them as much as like what they're used to with with local men you know it's just a different culture yeah and so how a relationship could work down here is if you're going to completely convert to their way of doing things or if they're going to completely convert to your way of doing things meaning you meet a girl here and you move back to California with her because she's a materialistic person and loves going to the mall and all that she's going to be stoked you guys are going to have a perfect relationship or if you're going to move here and take on all the things that she would expect a man to do behave like the men that she's seen in her life behave you know like a local man then I'll bet you guys could have a great marriage but if you're gonna behave like an American man somewhere along the line it's probably it's gonna be some heavy conflict and if yeah. you can tough it out that then hats off to you most can't right so in my situation with Zia's mom um, it was the proverbial girl next door um, I, I had a skateboard ramp her brothers were good friends of mine always hanging around the ramp their little sister was always hanging around and I was going through a divorce and she suggested to me that I get a real woman like me she said and I was like what I was totally surprised I looked back and I looked at her I was like how old are you now she was 18 I was like oh no and so we started dating I never imagined that it would really be anything super serious yeah got her pregnant um, we had the kid she ended up splitting up with me 
because uh, of the cross-cultural thing. It was sure. just too weird for her. All her friends, you know, were calling her a gold digger and whatnot, and she wasn't with a poor surfer for money. <laughs> so that just kind of got old. And so Zia now is 13 years old. I get along wonderfully with the mother. We're great friends. Um, it's just as ideal a situation as it could be, really. She has her mother. She has her father. She travels with me. We always come back here. You know, she surfs, does taekwondo, chess. Um, is just an amazing person. She's like my guru. Um, yet she has that third world campesino side from her mother's side of the family also, uh, which she loves. You know, I drop her off there, and they're in a, the fishing village right around the corner. They're on the beach, and so it's it's just really been the biggest blessing of my life and really fortunate and and stoked on how everything's turned out is there any legal um intrusion like in, a, in the u.s if you have a kid with somebody obviously the government gets involved and mandates maybe they sometimes the parents ask them to mandate visitation and that sort of stuff is there anything along oh those yeah lines here? there's all that and more here really? oh I yeah i think there would be oh yeah that's how that's how people do it here, you know. Okay. It, it's very, it's, you know, the, like slander, for example. You know, defamation is huge. It's a serious thing here, you know. And and you can put a, a denuncia on somebody, like a warrant, just by saying that they raised their voice at you. Really? It's, yeah, so it's, there's a lot of laws to protect the women because there's a lot of single mothers. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, but... You know, I support Zia's mother the best I can. You know, she's got a couple more kids, a couple brothers. So I'm always rolling by there with food and money and phone cards and, you know, pick up Zia and, and then drop her off with, with more supplies. And that's kind of my life. And so everybody's happy. Right. And um, what is schooling like for public schooling like for Zia? It's really good, actually, here. Um, she went to private school f for the first few years and it was just a little too loose for her taste she wanted more structure because she's got this you know surfer father who's always you know vagabond here and there and and if there's anything she probably strives for it's structure in her life and so she heard that the public school was more strict and uniforms and all that stuff and so she really embraces that and digs it and then she does a little bit of homeschooling on the computer so she gets a lot of extra kind of stuff and uh, then the public school is you know great physical education and socializing and all that stuff cool um, I don't see all that infrastructure when I'm around I mean obviously I don't travel far away from the beach when I'm here and only a couple of beaches, so I don't get to see any of that. I don't see public schools, hospitals, gas stations, <laughs> any of it, you know? There isn't any of that stuff anywhere around here okay. that you mentioned except for schools. Okay. And they're just in the middle of the bushes. Got it. Yeah, there's so no maybe infrastructure. maybe I've driven past them and I just didn't see them? Yeah, there's one right right here in front of the soccer field. That's, really? That's Zia's school right there. Yeah. Are, is that, are they building a new field there? They I, are. They're updating the, the soccer field. I remember yeah. there was one there in the past. Yeah, okay. it was uphill. So okay, okay. Each team had to play uphill for half of the game. 
And so they brought That's a tractor amazing. in and leveled it out. It's it's going to be the best concha on the whole coast. Who pays for that? Um, the community. Yeah, pitched in. Amazing. Yeah. Um, back to uh, your timeline. So you said you wanted to focus on surfing and skating for those 10 years. Um, how has work changed? Obviously, you make a living as a surf photographer. And, I mean, so when I got introduced to you, it was more as a filmmaker, but I know you were doing a lot of photography at the time, too. What is that outlook right now? Yeah, wow. Everything just keeps changing on me. It's crazy. But, I mean, I went from trying to kind of forget about work and concentrate on surfing. And then when my daughter was born, oh, guess what? I get real ambitious all of a sudden. And I was so lucky because the Quicksilver Crossing rolled into town. I hopped on the boat and was on there for three years. Um, so what was best the job in this, in this uh, first surf photographer in the industry? What, what is the Quicksilver Crossing or was the Quicksilver Crossing? The Quicksilver Crossing was a marketing campaign where Quicksilver rented the Indies trader, Martin Daly and his entire staff to basically do what they wanted with Martin Daly helping in the planning and the scheduling. So they started in Australia, went all over Indo, Tahiti, South Pacific, and then ended up coming to this region. It was a six-year project, and they went all the way around the world shooting photos with their athletes, checking reefs to sell clothing. So the athletes would just fly in for a certain leg of the trip, and you'd be on the boat as the staff photographer? Exactly. Got it. And then Hornbaker would fly in with like the Roxy girls and Kelly Slater, and I'd get to come home. Oh, okay. And then when, when they'd leave, I'd go back on the boat. And then all the other, anybody else who got on the boat, I would shoot with them. Epic. And other photographers would get on too, and other filmmakers. And, you know, that was when there were still magazines and right. still videos. And I was morphing back into my normal career of working for companies and magazines. But, you know, as you know, magazines have ceased to exist. Companies don't have any budget. What remains are these websites that basically have the interns running the asylum. They don't need qualified professionals anymore. They don't want to pay anybody. And they don't want stuff that I do, which is really cultural, like surf content. They're just not interested. So I'm doing some of the best edits of my life right now. And none of the... I send them to Stab. I send them to Surfline. I send them to all the... All the uh, websites most of them don't even reply yeah and when they do reply it's just a quick brush off oh hey good to see you're still alive no thanks <laughs> so my job now i shoot tourists surfing i work the beach at playa negra at playa colorado on a good day i just shoot whoever's out there and if i get good shots of you when you come to the beach i offer to sell them to you so that's how my job as photographer has changed i went from shooting for magazines and making my videos for distributors to now shooting the same exact people who used to buy my videos and buy the magazines I used to work for. I kind of cut out the middleman. But now that's mor morphing into the surf trip company where I provide people with my guide services, put them at the best place to stay so that they can have the best trip because that's kind of what my benefit has become because there's so many photographers now at every beach with their digital camera that I've had to evolve into becoming a surf guide 
to where what I have to offer can be utilized. Yeah. I mean, so I had um, two different people on this trip hand me their business, photographers standing on the beach, hand me my, their business card when I got out of the water. One of whom was a woman. I don't think, she didn't look like she's ever surfed a day in her life. She's got her kids on the beach with her. And it's awesome that she's entrepreneurial and interested in photography and surfing and all that sort of stuff. But she lacks a tremendous breadth of skill set that you do have. So yeah, you have a very unique, I mean, for years, first couple of years that I was coming down here and that we were connecting, you were offering all of that concierge style service just as part of the photography package. Just like, oh, I'm the photographer, I'll be your tour guide as well, you know? And the reality is now, that's a whole different skill set that you can charge for, you know? Absolutely. And by the way, we would pay for it because we don't know where to go. Like we would, we're, we're actually, we'd pay for that before we'd pay for the photography. Yeah, you know? I mean, people, first off, they don't really realize that they need it. You absolutely need it. Yeah, they think they can just rock up and the waves are gonna be good out front all the time. Yeah. Here, there's, we have 15 spots to choose from. Yeah. Each one works on a different interval, swell angle, swell size, tide, wind condition, and it's constantly changing. And as you know, I brought you guys to a perfect reef break day before yesterday with not one human around. And uh, long right-hander just peeling, peeling across the bay, and no one even showed up and checked the wave the whole time we were there. No. And it's just because the conditions changed just enough to where I knew that was going to be the spot. And meanwhile, there's... 20 guys sitting out here that have no idea just up the road they could be surfing pretty much the same exact wave with nobody out yep so it's funny that you mentioned that that i used to offer that as just part of the photography services i still would but people won't hire me as a photographer they'll hire that lady on the beach or the other dude that gave you a card right. that doesn't really have any surfing ability or knowledge of anything right but people these days their go-to is just costco or amazon they don't want to go to the mom and pop shop, you know. They don't want the skills, you know. Yeah. So now, I have to offer the surf trip because and people go, oh wow, that's the best place to stay and the best food package. Oh, they have photos too, cool. And then they don't even realize till they get here that the photography is going to be next level, you know, because it's just everything's gotten so generic that it's becoming more and more of a challenge every day for someone like me who's a specialist right um when the average person when the average surfer that's coming down is just like a vulnerable adult learner then they don't have any appreciation for the craft of it necessarily so you're going to deal with that too but i'm curious about that like as the photographer um what are the pros and cons of shooting tourists i mean is there any pro to it or do you wish that it was the heydays of the surf industry where it was all um, contract work? I wish it was the heyday of the surf industry when it was just film and you needed a lot of skill, you know, and you needed to be tenacious and it only certain personality types um, could be a, a professional surf photographer back in the day. And I never in my life met one that knew how to surf good, ever, when I was younger. Not even one. Because it's a different type of personality to be a surf photographer back in the day, you know, you, to sacrifice your surf time, you know, it just didn't go in the same personality. And right. I had enough entrepreneurial spirit that there was a crossroad in my life when I was like 17 years old, when I thought I was going to be a pro surfer, 
but I was already making money doing my film events. And I did the math and I said, well, if I just dedicate myself to photography and filmmaking, I'll be the only pro photographer who knows how to surf well. And so that was a big factor in me committing myself 100% to the craft of photography and filmmaking and kind of turning my back on the hopes of being a pro surfer. Are there any pros to surfing? Uh, pros in the sense of pros and cons to uh, shooting tourists? At this point, putting food on the table is what drives me 100%. Um, but I do meet some really nice people. But it's, it's really tricky because I'll talk to somebody right as they exit the water after surfing, and most people don't want to talk to anybody when they come out of the water after surfing. It's a real special kind of spiritual moment. They don't, really don't want anyone trying to sell them something. Right. And so here comes this guy walking up with some funny sunglasses, and they're like, oh, great. You know, and, and sure enough, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sell them something. Oh, here's a card. And so you want to check out your photos? Oh, sure. Let's check them out. You know, and I bust out my laptop, and there's just this weird vibe. It's a little bit eggy. They're kind of, you know, like not trusting. And when they see the photos, usually everything changes. They're like, oh, my God, because they can't imagine, you know, especially if they don't have that much of a surfing level you know, that they could get a good surf photo of themselves. That's kind of my specialty is taking those moments to make them look good. And then when they see the photos, they end up wanting yeah. to purchase them. Yeah. And so, but up to that point, it's kind of a weird vibe. So what I'm moving towards in the future are these surf trips where the photography is baked into the entire package to where there's never that weird issue about money and people, they just get the best of of me yeah. and they never have to be insulting to me or, or treat me weird yeah good and so that's as far as pros and cons I mean there's a these days for me there's a lot more cons um, but for somebody who's just a hobbyist it's all pros you know but it's the hobbyists that are you know kind of stealing my work <laughs> right completely um, you've talked repeatedly about focusing on your surfing What's your ambition with your surfing? Just to be the best in the world for my age. The best surfer in the world. I love that. The best 54-year-old surfer in the world. That's my goal right now. That's what I tell... Uh, you told me that a while. I think when you were 50. Right. <laughs> so you've been saying it for four years or maybe more. But that's how I refer to you. When people ask me about you, I'm like, oh, yeah, his ambition is just to be the best over 50-year-old surfer in the world. That's pretty much it. Who are you competing with? Man, um, you got Ross Clark, dude. You got Tom Carroll's probably in that category. Well, I'm not even in those guys' league. You know, I'm those guys are big wave surfers. You know, I'm a performance surfer. Okay. You know, so I would, you know, possibly do really well at lowers and get smoked at jaws. You know what I mean? So it depends on the day and, and whatnot. But on the overall scale. Um, you know, I want to see more 54-year-olds doing everything. What, uh, what are you focused on currently? Combos. You know, different air variations on the same wave with a lot of power and grace and elegance and um, being able to ride a traditional log well. Um, being able to turn a big single fin um, but my main focus is 
on a really small board on a medium-sized wave trying to trying to do everything I can do on one wave that's that's what drives me as a 54 year old one of the first things that starts to prevent you from doing that is just your body and athleticism and not being as limber and all that sort of stuff how do you feel about that what's your outlook on health it's a hundred percent the challenge is you it? know you just nailed it right there and I'm so dedicated and focused and so fortunate that I've got this lifestyle that you know I wake up and it's straight into it you know it's training you know it's strict vegetarian diet it's constant yoga and weights back and forth and tons of surfing how long have you been on the vegetarian diet 35 years really 35 years yeah so I recognized a long time ago that it was going to be necessary to attain the goal and the yoga it's really a super defined yardstick of where you're at health wise and flexibility wise because you know your poses you know how far you can go and how far you can't go and I'm continually taking my poses further and further and further every year because I don't stop. And so I'm 10 times gnarlier than I was two years ago when I was 52, you know, and surfing's the same. I video every session. I analyze every session. I'm improving in my surfing. So. Is your body still deteriorating, or do you feel like you've um, been able to stop some of that deterioration that a normal 54-year-old would feel? I mean, you're saying that your, yar- your yoga's gnarlier two years on would make me think you've almost regressed, you know, in age. It's not like that because, let's say, um, in my 40s, I wasn't as limber. I wasn't surfing as good as I am now but I could surf for four hours and not even get tired, you know? Now it's maybe two hours. Gotcha. You know, so you get tired earlier. That's what I can feel the difference of. Interesting. Yeah, but for that time that I'm not tired, it's better than I was before. And that's due to my lifestyle. There's no going back to the office for, you know, it's no. It's like your vacation, that's my life every day. Why? To see how far I can take it, to see how long I can keep improving. You know, and there's no, I don't have any examples to look to really is, I mean, I do as far as tube riding goes, but not as far as above the lip surfing. Right. So I kind of feel like I'm, I'm kind of writing the book for all the people my age and younger from now until the end of time, which is a really gratifying feeling. Um part of the diet conversation you mentioned yesterday that you haven't had a sip of alcohol in four months um why not and how's that going oh man so gnarly you know (laughs) i'm drinking beers every day of my life and since i don't get violent i don't raise my voice you know i don't have any apparent outward problems doesn't had never really seemed like an issue but I'm always striving to improve however I can you know and 
I always knew I had to stop sooner or later. Why? Because I've always striven for ultimate health. You know, just any little thing I can do to get an edge, to prolong what I've got going, I'm going to do head on. And I've always justified the, the beer drinking because I don't drink hard alcohol. I never was into, you know, vodka or rum or any of that stuff. Or drugs, you know, hard drugs, any of that stuff. So it was just beer. And I was always able to justify it by saying, okay, well, the stress relief is going to outweigh the health ramifications, you know, which is, that's just an alcoholic's brain justifying having another beer is all that is. And I didn't even realize that until I tried to quit and started fighting that urge, which is freaking gnarly. That urge is just no joke. And I'm fighting it. And now I have the ability to do the math. It's like, okay, why would I want to drink? Why would I not want to drink? And the why I would want to drink, it's like, it's two items. And the why I wouldn't want to drink, it's like 50 items. So it's super easy to just not do it. And I'd be stoked if I never drank again. So that was four months ago. Yeah. Um, what have the benefits been from not drinking? Oh, my God. Well, I lost 10 pounds. You know, my ankles were a little puffy. And, you know, I was just starting to kind of, like, feel little, little boozy, you know, old age type of things creeping up on me um, no hangover you know just hop up out of bed every morning all sprucey and stoked um, I'm not gonna lie there's been a, a couple weird mood swings because usually you know I start feeling a little bit of emotion this way or that way have a couple beers and kind of numb it you know that's gone now so you know, confronting those moods, but everything's killer. Super stoked. Is there anything you miss about it? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I love beer. I love the taste of it. Um, the camaraderie, you know, with the friends. You know, I've, I was at a wedding uh, a few weeks ago, and I ended up just kind of by myself. I didn't really want to. Everyone is in these different groups, you know, all drinked up and coked up and just chattering away, and I just not, I just... You know, didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody. It's yeah. super weird. I'm a social person, but yeah, it's 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 a trip. The social aspect is what you miss most. Do you think? I could see. No, that. no, yeah. the taste of beer. No, I'm drinking the non-alcoholic ones, which are killer. I was going to ask: Is there a replacement behavior? Yesterday, you had a club soda. Is that the go-to? Yeah, club soda. Or there's non-alcoholic beers. I don't come across them very often, but I'm enjoying those way too much. You know, but I've, I just, I'm a beer connoisseur. You know, I love diff drinking different beers in different countries for different climates. And, you know, I miss that. But it's not worth it for the turbo yeah. energy. Yeah. I remember at some point in some psychology class talking about or learning about replacement behavior is always a really smart strategy. Like, it's very difficult to just eliminate something. But if you can eliminate it and then add something in its place, you'll, it'll be a lot more easier. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's helped me out a lot also is like when I did that, I had beers in my fridge. You know, I never took them out. I just left them there. I look at them every day. Really? Yeah. See, that's the opposite advice I think most people would give. Well, I need that strength. Because that's temptation. Because you know? that, that gives me the strength. And I look at them, I'm like, ha, I'm over you. I don't want you. 
you know, that's strength right there. And, and when people try to peer pressure me, you know, and like, ah, hey, Tony, look, cold Tonya over here for you, my favorite beer. I'm like, I'm over it, you know? Yeah. And then that feels super empowering, that moment right. of saying no makes me way stronger overall. Mm. Fascinating. Um, talking about above lip surfing, let's get on to some WSL current event stuff. Yes. Um, you know Scott Bass loves to claim that the waves are the stars. Tech surfing is the star. Okay. The surfer state, is the star. State your case. Okay. The surfer is the star. Okay. When is the wave the star? Pipeline. Pipeline. Chopu. What do all people who would rather watch trestles have in common over somebody who would rather watch the Pipe Masters? I don't even think there are people who would rather watch trestles than Pipe Masters. Do you? Absolutely. Really? I would. Pipe. Dude, if Pipe's small and trestles is pumping, I'll take trestles. But you'd rather watch trestles than 8 to 10 foot Pipe. Absolutely. No way. And I know a lot of people are in the same boat. Here's why. Jerry Lopez could make the finals at Pipe on a perfect day. He's a 80-year-old man. You know, it's take off, go straight, get spit out of the barrel, and kick out. I mean, it comes. It gets a lot more tech than that. But put Jerry Lopez out in the heat at Trestles. Yeah. What excites me is seeing new maneuvers, seeing them put together like never before, seeing the combo, seeing the sport progress. I think people who would rather watch Trestles know how to do above the lip surfing. People who don't like that and can't relate to it, can't do it, so they're over it. I'll bet a lot of young kids would rather watch trestles than pipe. Yeah, yeah. You know? I can't do it. I still appreciate it, though. Of course. Yeah. But there's something in the back of your mind, you think that you could get spit out of a perfect barrel, and so it's more relatable to you. you know? And here's another aspect. The non-surfers, they want to see big waves. They want to see carnage. They want right. to see right. crazy wipeout. They don't understand the difference between a stale fish grab and a mute grab. Right. It doesn't make any sense to them. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. They'd rather see a kick out. You know? I'm into seeing the most tech surfing out there. And I love how the WSL is using it as part of the criteria. So it's not just a one-off like air show, you know, varial is going to win the contest. You got to surf the wave. Yeah. But if you can't do anything above the lip, you can't even be on tour. Right. At this point, you really can't. I mean, Mick Fanning kind of closed the door on that chapter of surfing, I feel. Completely. Yeah. So here's another example. I know a lot of you listeners out there split-screened the WSL content, or no, excuse me, the uh, air show, the airborne event, and the Red Bull event, right? Or what was it? Uh, Cape Fear. Yeah, it was Cape Fear, and what was Yeah, I think it was the air show. It was either the The air show. The first rounds of the air show. Okay. So, or the women's event. Might have been the women's Bali. I think it was women's. Yeah, it was. Okay. So I'm split screening both of them. I couldn't even watch Cape Fear. It was so boring. And I was fascinated by the women surfing. How well they were surfing on those waves. You know? Now, after the, I ended up closing the, the Red Bull part of the, of the split screen and just watching the women's 
and I think it went into the men's also that day. Maybe. Yeah, I think um, they ran six but, seats. But, and then I went back and I watched the Cape Fear event, which was pretty rad. I was stoked on watching the highlights. It was, it was super amazing. But watch one event or the other, it wasn't even close. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And, and why? I mean, going straight on gnarly waves is super fascinating. But to me, it's not as fascinating as somebody doing acrobatic moves on a medium wave or a small wave. Um, it was a travel day for me, so I wasn't stuck with that, plagued with that scenario of having to pick. Um, the Shipsterns event, the Cape Fear event, was not as big as it was forecasted to be, and it's not as big as we've seen it in the past. So I'll argue that was a mediocre event. But I guess the Women's Bali event was actually pretty mediocre, too. It's no, that's a, a great event. point. It was barely breaking ship yeah, turns, yeah, you know, yeah. and they were towing in. So, I, that's a really valid point. If it would have been ship turns at its best, I might have swiped the split screen the other direction and watched that. Right. Because that is just psycho. Yeah. Uh, so, what are you excited about then in surfing? Who are you excited about, and what what do you see in surf media that you're excited about? God, I'm I'm super excited about just the state of surfing. Oh, the, the combos that I'm seeing go down and and the style and the nimbleness of these these guys you know and the way that they're putting the moves together and I've also got to admit the way that it's packaged I love the WSL I love the commentators I love the the production value I watch the contest with my daughter I don't feel like there's any risk in anybody like saying anything inappropriate or anything weird popping up on the screen and uh, I'm just over the moon over yeah. it. And then personally, having like Chippa Wilson and Matt Miola and these guys in the, you know, involved in the WSL in their own way in the, in the Airborne, Airborne series is, it's getting way closer to what I want to see, which is as high performance as possible, um, surfing. Stab high. Stab high. Stab high event at Waco. Yeah, it just wasn't enough for me. Okay. You know, um, I'm sure the, the wave pools will get there, you know, where the ramps will be enough to where I'm, I'm like super psyched on that, you know, but I love the concept and I love the surfers that were there and, and some of the moves that were thrown down, but it was just lacking, not the fact that it wasn't in the ocean. That's not what, what was tripping me out. It was just that people were having to fabricate their own speed. Once somebody can just stand up and style out and go flying into a ramp and then just hold on to the, to the, just the biggest freaking flip ever, now that's when we're going to be talking. But we're still at the point now where people have to kind of fabricate their own speed. The most light-footed tech guys are going to be the best. Um, that's going to change when you've got something that Jordy Smith can just kind of like stand on his tail and then just go straight into a big massive wedge. Yeah. Because he can do the airs that those guys could do, but he would never take the, the Waco event. Absolutely. He can do airs that other people cannot do. Right. Yeah. Very few people are in that guy's league. Uh, I agree completely. Um, did you watch the Airborne event in Bali? I did. So it's kind of going to be an ongoing conversation as they continue to suss out the way they run those events. My issue with it was Eli Hanneman had the best airs of the whole event. Like, if you go back and watch the highlights, Eli looks like he smoked everybody. 
but somehow he ended up in third because maybe those airs were in the early round heats or something like that. I'm not, not, a, not even sure how they score it. But Jack Freestone won. I think Kalani David got second, and then Eli got third. So I think that's just an issue in general that they're going to have to figure out is most of us are going to watch it in a highlights package. And why is it that the guy who won the highlights package came in third in the event? That's a great point. The guy who won the highlight package should win the event. You would think. At which was Ian Crane. Oh, really? By a mile. No one was even close. What did he do? He did a backside stale fish, full rotation. Followed it up with a, the most beautiful backside grab, just clean straight air I've seen since Corey Lopez. And even threw in a Gorkin flip in the same heat. Really? Yeah. Gnarly. And all of them, it just stuck perfectly. So he probably blitzed that one heat and then didn't have scores in other heats or something? Maybe that's why he didn't win? I have podium? no idea, but we got to get that format skewed yeah. to where the winner of the highlight reel is to. the winner of the event. You have to. I'm have sure they can tweak that. I think they will. You know, I, I definitely think they will. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a backside full row stale. Either have I. It was so sick. His tail was above his head and... It was just like the perfect spin and totally styled out. Yeah. I mean, just hats off. The commentators are calling frontside backside and backside frontside, and Kaipo is trying to reel them back in, but it's just a mess. What do you mean? It's just like surfers. They want to call tricks that were invented moons ago and snowboarding half pipes and, and on skateboard ramps. They want to rename them, and it, which is fine if it's a Gorkin flip. But it's not fine if it's a frontside alley-oop. I mean, you just, you just don't... It's just super disrespectful, in my opinion. Uh, break it down. What's a frontside alley-oop in your definition? Do you know what a frontside alley-oop looks like on a ramp or snowboarding? Explain it to me. Okay. Let's say you're regular foot and you're going left. Okay. And you do an alley-oop. Okay. That's a frontside alley-oop. No matter what. Surfers think because you're going backside, you change the name of the trick to backside alley-oop. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't catch that. I didn't hear any of the commentators either. Um, so wait, the, the who were the commentators with Kaipo? Vaughn, uh, Blakey, yeah. was off on a few calls. And Kaipo was spot on on every call oh okay and reeling them all in explaining to them that look there's no such thing as a frontside indie gotcha on planet earth sorry an indie is a backside grab when you grab bottom hand you know it's like and he's explaining it to people with the same tinge of frustration in the voice that you hear in my voice right now because it's just ridiculous if if you know kelly slater said oh the, they did pirouettes and in ballet but we do 360s we're not going to call a 360 a pirouette come on guy yeah. i mean there's a an alley-oop snowboarding or skateboarding or surfing is the same exact trick yeah um and by the way if you don't grab it's an ollie-oop oh really yes i didn't know that um don't take it as disrespectful 
you know, like Vaughn making the wrong call. Oh, it's I don't not know. it's not disrespectful. No, people being clueless doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't no, or just not not having an awareness of um, a different sport, you know. Yeah, and I know that he's like I'm pretty sure he skates and hangs out with Ozzy Wright, and I, I think that he knows, but was trying to be like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like, oh, it's a, a whatever you want to call that. Yeah, sure, guy. Whatever that was, trying to get away from the type of conversation we're having right now. Right. Right. Kaipo right. was really going for it. Right. Good on Kaipo. I didn't know that he even had that background. Kaipo rips on any kind of board. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Hmm. Deep. Good on him. Yeah. Um, what surf media do you follow nowadays? Um, it's kind of hard not to follow Beach Grit when I get three spam emails every single day. <laughs> and I click on every single one of them to see if there's anything interesting. So now you're only enticing them to send more. If you click and open it, oh, yeah. they're tracking it. No, I want it. Oh, okay. I good. love Derek. I love Beach Grit. I love Chaz. I mean, but there's only a, so much of it's palatable. You know, in my reality, it's just, and once in a while I'll open, I'll be like, oh my goodness. And then I go straight to the website and then I'll end up spending, you know, some time reading the comments and the whole thing. It's super funny. Yeah. Um, Instagram, of course, you know, um, as far as like watching YouTube videos, it's, I just watch all skateboarding. You know, I love uh, Battle of the Barracks. There's a Brazilian show called Slides and Grinds where it's a contest, like a game of skate, but it's on, on a ledge. So they have to alternate between doing grind tricks and slide tricks. It's incredible. And I'm learning Portuguese, so it's, it's really cool to learn like a lot of the skate terms. Uh, so there's, you know, surf media to me, it's just gotten, you know, less and less tangible. I can't pick anything up and touch it and read it. There's no more magazines. And, and you know, the websites have just gotten kind of real, kind of, uh, the opposite of hardcore, whatever that is, softcore. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Just soft in general. Yeah. So it's tough, man. I'm a full surf fan. I, I, I want content. You know, yeah. I listen to every podcast. You know, I, I get my hands on everything I can, and I just it's not much of it's palatable. Besides, the podcasts are the best. What do you What do you see as biggest opportunities for surf media? I mean, what would you want? What oh can people? What would people produce question. for you? Because I kind of feel that same way too. Like I'm, I'm actually wondering. Like I lament surf magazines kind of going away, right? But at the same time, I love being able to curate my own experience. I'm kind of past. Like when I grew up, it was all the information trickled down from three publications and like five brands, basically. And so the editors definitely had an influence and very few people had influence over what I was exposed to. So I really like that now I can pick my own journey. And I think that surfing is less homogenized because of it, because the 14-year-old kid growing up in Southern California can pick an entirely different journey than the 14-year-old kid growing up in Northern Cal versus Florida versus uh, Hawaii, and they're all riding different equipment because of it. You know, they have so many different wetsuit brands now. They're all kind of dressing differently because of it and styling differently because of it. It's kind of a unique time in that regard, but I'm sure there's a tr there's probably really great content that gets lost because of all the white noise. 
I don't know, it feels like a good time. Like for somebody like me who creates content, it feels like the Wild West. Like, dude, just go do it. Whatever. I'm not, you won't necessarily be able to monetize it, but whatever you want to create, you can create, which is a good thing. I agree 100%. I think you nailed it. Even to the point of where I don't even know if I could enjoy a magazine now. I don't know if I could either. You know, it's just like the, the game's been so changed that, you know, and of course for a young kid, that's just like not even feasible. But here we are, we come from that era. That was everything and now it's nothing. And so what would be ideal? That's a really great question. You know? I think that all the video blogs, you know, people doing their own like like Jamie O'Brien and Cole Rothman and all these guys, they got their own thing. It's making it to where, I think it's something comparable to what happened to TV when the real world came out. That if there was any quality programming, it, it just left. The real world and all the, those shows just kind of like wiped it out to where now it's like, I mean, just you want to see Jamie O'Brien, just go straight to his blog. I know. You don't need to go to Red Bull or... Yeah. What about as a photographer? I mean, I would think that the magazine is the best medium to showcase the work. Do you have an opinion as a photographer? Well, it used to, of course, be the best way, the only way. And now it's like, you know, everyone says, oh, you need to do a book. Do a book. Do a book. And I'm like, it's just the print theory in my mind. There's like a block there now. You know, it almost seems like, oh, do a book so people can look at it and put me on the shelf and forget about me. No, no, no. I want to be like tomorrow, not yesterday. So as a photographer, it's just about embracing whatever comes our way. You know, three years from now, we might be working on some medium that we haven't even fathomed at this moment right now. And I think the key is just to be open and pliable and keep adapting. Mm. And then adding the quality and the depth of the work that you can only have if you've been doing it your whole life. Yeah. That's my only hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, we need to plug your business, too. You said that the concierge deal, what, what's the name of the business? How do people get a hold of you? All that sort of stuff. Realsurftrips.com. Um, What's the program? Yeah, we offer packages where it includes accommodation, food, transport, unlimited photo and video sessions of your trip, and an edit of your trip at the end of your trip. So I have locations in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Jamaica, Dominican Republic. And so that's what I have set up so far. So anyone who wants to go to any of those places, I know the best time to go there. And these are, in my opinion, the best places to go in these countries yeah. with the best people. Yeah. I have the Rotherham family will be hosting you in El Salvador. I have Luke Williams will be hosting you in Jamaica. I mean, I talk about an all-star team. I awesome. mean, it, it's incredible, my, awesome. my, uh, my team. Um, considering that you're investing in your surfing always, how easy or hard is it for you to get the boards that you want? It's really easy. It's really easy. Really? I mean, because my main board I've been working on since 2000, and that's a 5.3 uh, 
that Xanadu and I formulated and Doc Lausch and I have been refining. And so I've got so many years that every little refinement in the board is just, it's, it works so dang good, it blows my mind. And then I'm getting into all these different types of boards, you know, mostly single fins and just bigger, bigger types of boards for the kind of medium days and, and the novelty spots. And then longboarding, I mean, it's so tech and so difficult that it's one of the most intriguing things in, in surfing for me these days. You know, when the, when the conditions are small, I'm just over the moon to try to go out there and, and work on longboarding. But when I say easy or hard, where are those boards coming from? Are they being made here or made in the U.S. and then brought down? Or you go back to the U.S. and pick them up or what? Yeah, I'll order boards in the U.S. and have friends bring them down or go up there and pick them up. Um, I have been super, super fortunate. Alex Nost gave me my latest longboard. No way. Just, just broed me down. That's, I set up their last trip down here. Was it his, like a board that he shaped? Yeah, it was a personal board he made for himself. How's it go? It's absolutely magic. Really? I mean, the first couple times I rode it, it just dug a rail because it's so hard to ride. I mean, he's so freakish. I think he makes boards that are hard to ride for extra challenge or something. Hmm. But then once you do something good, it feels twice as good. Hmm. But it's got the weirdest rails, and it's just a bizarre-looking board, but it works so good now that I figured it out. Crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. Crazy. Um, did you said that you film all your sessions yesterday? I was talking about that wave that you got. You had your camera in the bushes. Did you get the clip? I did. You did? But, but I, I wasn't that deep. Oh no, yeah. bomber! But it's 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 a sick wave for sure. Yeah. Are you gonna post it? Yeah. I'm dying to see it. Yeah. Like, cause my angle, like I said, I couldn't even see if you were in it or not, but. The wave looks sick. I'll put it on my Instagram, my surfing Instagram. Sick. At TR Surfing. Perfect. Because I also have my photo Instagram, which is at Tony Roberts Photo. Right. And then the real, at Real Surf Trips Instagram, which is for the surf trips. And then for the best Nicaragua, I have at Playa Colorado. Awesome. And don't even make me get into the music ones. Start (laughs) dropping Twanies music with a Z and all that stuff. Um, All right. Well, then what was the last board that you rode? It was the TR model 5320s by Doc Lausch with the extra big uh, surf arcade fins. Um, just Is it like two fins plus a small trailer? Or? No, the opposite. It's a big back fin and a huge back fin and two extra large side fins and a huge back fin. Gotcha. The thick white tail big fin combo is the key. That's why you can ride it so small, 5.3. Exactly. That's um, why it goes so fast, but still is driving. Can people order that model from Absolutely. Doc? Yeah, okay. Surf Prescriptions. Sick. Yeah, Jeff Doc Lausch. Sick. Right on, Tony. Always a pleasure. Absolutely.
Thank you so much, Tony Roberts. Always wonderful to connect with you. If you would like to connect with Tony, his website is realsurftrips.com. And I've linked to that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Obviously, he'll give you the full concierge service down there, Costa Rica and the other locations that he named. And you can find video clips of Tony surfing, images that he has shot through his camera lens, and also um, a couple of his old films that are published now on YouTube. I've posted all of that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com, where you can also leave a comment in the comments section uh, for Tony and myself to see. And feel free to review and rate the show in whatever podcast app you listen in. That is a wonderful way to help strangers find this show. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. Had a blast in Costa Rica. Scored um, pretty much head high, super fun waves the entire time. And uh, as Tony said, lots of empty spots, just a short, short drive from some of the main spots that are overcrowded at times. So get down there when you can. Guarantee you'll have a blast. And this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode. But until then, I encourage you to get back into the water, share some waves, and shred on. Oh my head.